Hello, my name is Joseph Angara. Thanks for taking the time out to check out my podcast, Unannounced. Unannounced aims to break the stigma surrounding mental health while reminding listeners that it's okay not to be okay. If you worry about your own or someone else's mental health, don't remain unannounced. Start the conversation and access support. Visit www.stagechelly.com.au slash get help for a list of services. On this week's episode, I sat down with Rowan Heggie. Ron and I spoke about dealing with ADHD and how that impacted not only his childhood, but also his education. The mental challenges he and his young family faced while he was enlisted in the Australian Army and so much more. I hope you enjoy listening to Rowan's story as much as I did. Well, uh, welcome welcome to the podcast, Rowan. Um, thanks thanks so much for taking your time out to come on. Um, I usually just like to start by sort of getting the guests to give us a bit of a background on themselves, so their childhood, school and sport, and yeah, we usually just go from there. Yeah, mate, I just want to stay, but I really appreciate you um, letting me be a part of this and really commend uh, what your um, initiative is and your drive to basically get people to uh, be okay with speaking out um, a bit about me. Uh, I grew up in Cairns uh, with a sister, mum, dad, family four, lived in Cairns when I was 15. My childhood was like quite an interesting one. I was kind of like diagnosed with ADD slash ADHD. For those who aren't familiar with that, that's like attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactive disorder for me uh, it was just basically struggling to focus for a, a, an extended period of time on one subject or or during like a, a conversation uh, it was quite uh, new and unknown to people um, in the early 90s which was when I was diagnosed with that um, and so the medication was was real raw as well so uh, I think what made it difficult for me is that I had to take that medication at that stage four times a day. And I was taking that uh, during school. So you can imagine, you know, like your teacher go, oh, like it's 10 o'clock, like you need to go to the office and go take a tablet. There was no like discreet <laughs> or like privacy surrounding that. And so it became common knowledge to the other students. And it was like, well, why does this kid have to take a tablet? Um, what's wrong with him? And I was quite ostracised there for a period because, well, that was seen as different and abnormal. Yeah, like uh, I think as as the years started to get or progress, uh, some teachers were frustrated with me as as a student as well, which is understandable because this thing wasn't like quite a common practice around then and people were still trying to understand themselves just as much as my parents were and I was. Uh, and so I do remember a time even like a teacher was like, can you go to the office and go take your chill pill? You look back at it now and you just shake your head to think that that time it was just okay to just make that comment out loud and, and for other students to hear that. As I mentioned, I was kind of like ostracised a little bit. I did have a small friendship group, but because of the ridicule, it just it, it was a real battle to want to turn up to school. Nobody really talked about self-harm or taking the life. I, I That thought never crossed my mind and I don't think that crossed a lot of people's minds or was it made public but I do remember at a year of the young age like I must have been only like seven single digits that I, I actually sat myself in a corner uh, outside and I and I asked why am I alive like what's my purpose of living because I just felt like life was so unfair and I think now looking back on that that's quite dark and quite heavy for somebody so young to ask that of themselves thankfully yeah. thankfully though uh, my parents put a lot of work into into myself um, and into that, it was probably about year 10 that as my maturity started to kick in, 
my body started to develop and I kind of made the conscious decision that I was starting to really outgrow that. Some people don't though, but I kind of felt like I was in a direction that, okay, now I can focus in class now and I don't need this medication. And, and this medication, thankfully, um, improved as well. So it got to a point where I only had to take one tablet um, like from the minute I woke up and that would last the duration of the day. So then there was more uh, privacy surrounding that. You know, no, nobody knew that I had to go and take that. It was just between my family and myself. Thankfully, it's not really, it, it really subsided out of my license for me. Yeah, like year 11. So, um, but that that was pretty pretty heavy, I, I must admit. Yeah, yeah. Um, you touched on, obviously, while you're growing up at school and like you had a you had a group of friends, but I guess uh, compared to other kids, you were, probably didn't have that many friends. When your teachers were sort of telling you that it's oh, 10 o'clock, you need to go have your um, chill pill tablets, as one of your teachers said, were there times where you sort of felt uncomfortable or you sort of felt like your friends that you have now would sort of stop playing with you because you were seen as that weird kid that had to go take their tablets at a certain time or or just had to take tablets in general to just cool your mood down? Did you sort of feel awkward at times with that? At times, definitely. uh, But at the same time, credit to a few of my mates, you know, they left that in the corner. They didn't really um, use that as ammunition. But, you know, sometimes like kids do, you get hyped up and, and and then it, you know, mates amongst mates, they couldn't help themselves. They decided like, oh, you know, might, might want to calm down, mate, might, might want to take a tablet. And it just felt like I did really feel not normal. But uh, I think the biggest biggest part that hit home to me was like, you know, when the teacher, uh, an adult, you know, as a, as a student, you really look up to these uh, educators, like they're a massive deal. And for them to let that slip, it really impacted and hurt me a lot. Yeah. Probably yeah. especially yeah. that that it was kind of meant to be like a private thing too. And, and it wasn't, and my parents did mention that to the principal and to the teacher. They're like, can we make this a discreet thing? Uh, and it, it really didn't, yeah, obviously eventuate to be that way. Well, was there conversations with your parents and the teachers about sort of how some of the teachers would act when you, I guess you were sort of acting up? Well, obviously it wasn't your fault. It's a condition that you have, but like, when you're acting up in class, was there sort of a conversation that you and your parents had to have with the teachers? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, my parents and a few of the teachers butted heads because my parents did the research. They found that there was preservatives and additives in food. Mum worked out like, you know, you look at the back of packaging and there'll be like numbers 112 and mum would have this book and she'd work out what 112 means and she's like, okay, my son can't have 112. So, Credit to that beautiful woman. She put so much time and effort to really understand that. And so she got it. Whereas people who didn't educate themselves, because how, how typical is that, right? If you don't educate yourself on the matter, you're so naive in it. And so these teachers didn't understand. They didn't get it. And so that's where the clash was. They're like, oh, well, I mean, he's acting up like he's being ridiculous. He's disrupting my class. He's talking to his friends. And mum's like, yeah, but you need to understand that he's, you know, being troubled by this condition that he has at this time. Did that frustrate you? Like knowing that, I guess, or not just you, but your whole family, knowing that so many people in your family, especially your mum, have like, studied what, what this disease is, what like, this condition is, so, and what you sort of need to do to sort of take care of it while your teachers who are sort of meant to be pushing that, like he can't be in a room with certain people or needs to take his tablets at certain times, didn't really understand what you're going through, like, did that sort of annoy you? Definitely. Yeah. Once, once they failed, 
you know, by keeping it private, making it public too. And then there was those students that then knew and, and used that as, you know, venom towards me. That's, that's probably at the darkest times. And I didn't feel like the teachers were there to help me like you touched on. Like you said, you know, they weren't there to understand to make me feel welcome. They weren't there to, to work with me. There was a couple that were, and, and to this day, I'll never forget their names um, nor their imprint on me. So let that be known. There were some really good ones there, but it was the, it was the few that weren't. Um, that, that's when it led me to, as I say, question what was my point in living? Why, why was I put on this earth um, at such you know, a young age? When, when you're questioning why you're alive and your purpose, what sort of the things that, that came into your well that popped into your mind that sort of I guess kept kept you going and sort of I guess reassured you that you did have a purpose and there was a reason why you were still living probably my parents uh yeah so like yeah I had my mates but my father was probably like my best mate um and and obviously the bond that I had with my mum because she understood that uh they really drove me um to believe that there was it was more than just the school like once you left that it was okay like yes it could be tough now but um, you know, you're coming back home to a solace, back to love and, and understanding. I was reading a book. Uh, well, I'm currently reading a book the other day. Uh, what the fuck? I'm currently reading a book at the moment. And one of the quotes um, that's that's really sort of got me thinking a fair bit about exactly what you've been talking about is where there is hope, there is life. Where there's life, there is hope. And I guess what I'm trying to get at with that is, did you feel as if that little bit of hope with, I guess, your parents having your back for that, like, everything you're going through and sort of being there with you every single time that you needed help sort of pushed you a bit further to sort of, I guess, not worry too much about what the other kids at school were thinking about you or what the teachers were sort of acting like when it came to 10 o'clock or it came for you to take your pills. Yeah, definitely. Um, they really gave me that unconditional love and support that gave me the perseverance. And dad always had the belief in me um, that, I would amount to something in sport or, um, you know, mum always was like, if you want to be a vet, you can be a vet. She knew, like, I had strong capabilities in some subjects like uh, math and science. Um, things we, we would we did do it tough, though, a little bit financially. So, like, there was an opportunity there where that I made the um, national um, karate uh, team and I was meant to go away um, and then Dad had to drop the... Uh, the hard truth that it was something that we couldn't afford to do. Um, he, he, you know, he was able to say like, that's a massive you know, achievement itself. And there was a reason why he put me in that too, because he wanted me to become focused, um, disciplined. Uh, so to not lash out at these people that always wanted to um, put me down because of this, you know, small condition that I have or had, sorry. You just mentioned the small condition that you had, Sort of, so how has that sort of, I guess, developed since while you've gone, gotten older and throughout life, you've obviously got kids now and you, you've, you've been in the army, which we'll obviously talk about later. But, yeah, sort of how has that developed through, I guess, as your life has gone on? Yeah, well, as, um, as I got older, as I touched on earlier, the medication um, and the time put into um, understanding that condition really deepened and so medication became not something that Nick was required to be taken uh, four times a day and um, became able to be taken one time a day uh, so that helped me because you could my parents could start to see when there was multiple tablets being taken a day as one was starting to wear off when another one would be required to be taken but for me it was actually my call that I said to my parents I felt like I was starting to really uh, mature 
And probably, as I mentioned earlier, about year 10, I thought when I go to year 11 and 12, I think I've got what it takes to be able to uh, not take this tablet anymore. Some people don't grow out of this condition, I, I must be honest. Like some people do have this for life. And my parents were really nervous. They were like, are you sure? And I said, like, just back me in. Like, give me a, give me a go. And I said to my parents, if my, if my results during taking these subjects don't reflect well in accordance to me coming off this medication, then we understand that it's probably something that I'm not ready to do. But it was my own mental strength and, you know, perseverance. that was like, I want to I forward past this and I, I believe I can um, beat this and become um, mentally stronger and being able to concentrate and and yeah, it, it proved to work and it was it was one of those cases where then I had never looked back and I ended up, you know, getting fairly decent marks through 11 and 12 and uh, even did an associate diploma at university. So it did pay off and showed that in the long run I could get there without requiring it. Well, was that sort of, I guess, that feeling like knowing that you probably don't, you, well, not probably, but you don't need these tablets anymore and you, you sort of can, you can function without having to take a tablet a day and just sort of actually start living quote unquote unquote, a normal life massive relief like it didn't matter how much my parents said like there's nothing wrong with you you're you are fine you know we love you you're you're so good at x y and z there was within me that i didn't have a sense of normality it did give me once i was able to get off when i did um come off that medication I, i really did feel a sense of um, normality and, and that I was able to not crutch on something essentially. We've touched on um, obviously your education and then obviously going off the tablets and then year 11 and 12 doing really well with your education. Obviously when you messaged me about potentially coming on the podcast and having a bit of a chat, the main thing that sort of captured me was the fact that you were in the army but also sort of struggling with ADD. Well, while you're younger, you're struggling with ADD and obviously that being in the army or even being in any work, like any defence force is a pretty big job. What sort of made you want to go into the army and sort of, I guess, can you just sort of touch on that transition from 11 and 12 and then and then moving into the army? I went to university, as I touched on, did uh, an associate diploma in aquaculture. That's the farming of marine and freshwater species. That, that really intrigued me. I had fish tanks growing up and that, that was something that you know, dad was was like, oh, you need to go to university to make something of yourself. Uh, and I thought, well, if I'm going to go to university, I want to do something that I, that I thoroughly enjoy. And that's what really um, intrigued me. A struggle I found is once I graduated university and got that associate diploma, uh, I started looking for work and I was in a similar theme that I was prior to my degree, struggling to find work. There was the old adage that if you went to university and you'd come out with a degree, you'd become rich, like you'd all, all of a sudden have all this money. And it wasn't true. I was like, what? You know, I'm still, I'm still pouring drinks. I'm still working behind bars. I'm still playing music. And I've got this degree and, and I'm no, no more successful than I was before I had the degree. It really, it really bugged me. And I was with it without lack of trying, I really did try and get um, myself in a position where. I could set myself up successfully in that field. And it just didn't um, didn't amount. Um, and unfortunately for me, I just thought, well, where's my future going? Uh, Dad always said to me, like, a government job will hold you strong. It'll give you the – it'll keep you in good stead with um, uh, with security. And the defence was a pl- uh, putting a call out for a 
applications and a role that would only see you um, contract contractually obligated for one year. And I thought, well, you know, it was kind of the norm that you'd do four years in the army. And I thought, well, one year at least if, uh, if I didn't like it, I could get out. And and that was, I just bit the bullet. I remember coming home one day and I said, mum, dad, I've signed up to the army. And that was a bit of a blowout for them. It was a bit of a blowout for me, but I was hell-bent on trying to make something of myself um, and give myself, give my life a bit of direction and purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome to hear. So moving away and I guess leaving your family behind, obviously you and your parents are pretty close and you're, you're pretty, I'm assuming you're pretty close with the rest of your family. What was that feeling like having to, I guess, move away and sort of start start that um, work? It was daunting, but the thing that was in my favour is that when I made the commitment to do university, I had to do that in Launceston. So I'd had a bit of a taster for you know, leaving the nest, going out on my own and having a crack. So I, I really did feel comfortable in the sense that signing up for the Army did require me to be away, but there was purpose, there was drive. And once my parents understood that, they were really supportive of that. They are like, look, we understand what you want to, want to achieve and uh, we're, we're happy to support you with that. So it wasn't easy because, like you said, I did have that massive connection with my, with my parents and, my family, my friends down here, but um, I'm, I've always been hell-bent hell and driven on trying to make something of my life. So when, when did you end up moving and sort of, I guess, what was what, what was that time frame? Did you, can you just sort of touch on moving away and then being deployed and then sort of, I guess, your work in the army and then it leading up to some of the struggles you sort of had to go through? Yeah, so um, I enlisted uh, in 2013, my wife now who was my girlfriend then you know I said are you be prepared to take off with me if I get in and, and pass recruit school and she was like yep yep we can do that and I had my um my first order at the time as well uh so that was tough you know I did two uh sorry I did a 12 weeks at Kapuka they really want to break you down from a civilian so to make you a, a soldier that's that's their main main goal uh and retrain the way your mind thinks. There were some people who just didn't cut the mustard and, you know, they, they made uh, accusations towards what they might do if they weren't released um, because they couldn't hack anymore and, and so they were moved on. Uh, and there was times there for me where I thought, oh, what have I, what have I done? I remember getting off the bus um, on the very first day. You know, it was about 80 of us and we were all thinking, you know, what have we got to into the minute we got off the bus I'd never heard so many profanities tucked in one sentence directed at me and and my um and my existence never heard people so many people yell at me and just call me all these names on the sun I was like yeah I'm into some ride here I wrote letters back home and that was my way of like venting you know and it shook my parents a bit they're like when they got these letters they were a little bit concerned but it was my way of just getting off the test knowing that I'd be all right um, I had these photos of my family and of uh, my little girl at the time, and I knew once I'd get out the other side, we were told that things would improve. It was it was a matter of breaking us in the, that twelve weeks, making us uh, soldiers. That would be the hardest part. Once we got out, it'd, it'd become more of a nine to five job sort of thing, yeah, you know, quote unquote. I succeeded that in two thousand fourteen. We we moved uh, to Brisbane. We was doing a lot of uh, with our unit was online online meaning that we were doing deployments, we're going out 
on exercises to prepare, basically getting ourselves ready constantly. So we're in a heightened state. We're on a very active state constantly um, doing um, active uh, preparation uh, for that. That was fine. I think what, like you do take, you do take for granted having that time with your family. And then when that's taken away from you, you do realize, oh, things aren't as rosy as you might have thought they were. But we had the brotherhood, we had our boys, and that was really great. Like I've still got lifelong mates this day without, without doing the same struggle every day with them. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the same with that camaraderie and that banter that we had. And so things, things progressed um, as I was going through my career. And it got to a point probably in 2016 when I knew uh, my lovely wife was we were going to have our, our third baby in 2017. Things were, the environment around us was quite like optic at that time. I asked if I could be granted permission to go to a different location or like a different unit because I knew what was required of me. Uh, and I didn't think I'd be able to fulfill that with three kids um, under the age of six, I think it was. And I didn't want to put that stress on um, my young family. I could see that I was starting to change mentally. I was starting to come home and bring bring home with me a lot of the um, anguish and um, pent-up anger and frustration home and, and starting to bring that home. And, and that wasn't me. I didn't like that version of me. And I thought, okay, this is what I need to do. And for what for, for whatever reason in in, in the world, um, that that couldn't have been achieved, um, unfortunately. And so I had to make the call. I was like, what 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 direction do I need to go now uh, for uh, my family and for my career? And I bit the bullet and I said, you know what, the longevity of my family is going to be forever, and I want that to last forever. So I thought, right now, full time uh, army isn't for me um because i want to start this young family early and finish early uh so i i requested to become an active reservist and i requested to be moved back to uh tasmania where my wife's from um and you know to this day i'm, I'm still a um, army reservist and our family is still flourishing uh so yeah but i think i think a big take-home point from that for me is being able to be self-aware of my own emotions and what I was bringing home and being able to go, uh, this version of me isn't okay. It's not cool. Um, you know, just being short and snappy, you know, like, you know, um, my lovely wife might just say like, oh, how, you know, how was your day? And I'd be like, oh, just don't worry about it. Like, just leave it. And then I'd be like, well, like, why did, why did I do that? Like, that's, that, I wouldn't have done that. Like, what, what's, what is this that I'm doing right now? Um, sort of, you know, if I could pat myself on the back, it was really good that I actually acknowledged that. Um, and she was really supportive of that. She understood, thank, thank goodness, she was able to go, you know, I know, I know sometimes it's tough what, what you do. And so I get, I get you don't mean to, um, but I want to just raise it with you too that there's, you know, there has been a change in your personality and your vibe. Yeah, no, it's really actually really good that you did sort of notice that, that you were changing before. I guess, as you see, with a lot of people, it goes to something drastic and something bad end up end up happening. Um, on that though, you sort of touch on the brotherhood, and you sort of see, in I know movies are completely different, but you sort of see in movies that to have anything to do with the army or soldiers and stuff, how close they are with with their um, with their partners and the the brotherhood in general. And you sort of see that it's sort of one person dies or one person goes missing. How much it sort of affects everyone else. 
when when you were away and I guess you weren't able to see your family or sort of be in contact with your family as regularly as you would like to, what was that what was that feeling like knowing that you had a bunch of mates there that were going through the same thing you were that you could easily go and access them and go talk to them about what you may be going through? Sort of how did that sort of help you continue the three or four years that you sort of were in the army for? Like what role did that play on your life? Oh, massive role, yeah. You and you're right, like everything that you've you touched on in regards to that question is 100 And I think what like what helps is that you're not alone when you're doing it tough on those times away. You, you know, you're sharing that amongst all your mates. They're all they're all hating it just as much as you. And so you go, you know, you get you do sleep deprivation, you do food deprivation, and so you do become a little bit, you know, a little bit cuckoo. You just like the stuff that like comes out of your mouth. It's just constant verbal diarrhea and and the amount of times I've like been like just had tears pouring from my face with laughter because we're just like we've just lost the plot, but we've lost it together. You just find yourself hours on end just with one another that you talk about so much of your life. Do you feel like they've been a part of your life uh, since day one? Because once one conversation finishes, you're like, okay, well, what else do we talk about? You know, tell us, tell us about um, your primary school, tell us about your high school. So there was that proper interest and concern for one another that you did really feel like we were brothers we were family we lost a mate um, through a training accident it was amazing to see you know throughout Australia like I was back here in Tasmania when it happened and I had mates up and down it's just like it 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 becomes it filters through like it doesn't become unknown what's occurred and and um it, it does really move you and it's a small a small sentimental piece, but we all got like a uh, like a bracelet band in, and we all wear that in memory of, of uh, him. Uh, and that just, you know, and that's done amongst all of us. So you just think like, it, it's funny. Like somebody would just say, if they if they're not aware, you know, they're like, oh, what's that black band? And and you're, you're bringing up that conversation, like, oh, that's that's Trooper Stuart Redden. Like, yeah, he was an absolute legend. Like. Um, he went about his business, you know, really well. Uh, and he was one of the boys. And, and so that that in itself means that the memory is not forgotten. He's always there. Um, another instance is um, I had another mate of mine who'd gotten out um, and he was in Brisbane. And I'd just gotten a phone call. Like sometimes we don't, it's just funny, like you can be so close, you're not here from anyone for like months. And I got a phone call from my mates and he goes, mate, um, your mate's not in a good, our other mate's not in a good uh, base right now. Like I've, I've called an ambulance to go over and I'm about to go over too. And it's just like, boom, straight away. Like I'm ringing, I'm trying to get a hold of him. I'm trying to get other mates that I know that are in close proximity to him to get over here. I'm starting to look at flights because they just, they just become brothers. And, and it's crazy that, um, those morals that they have and that we have as, as a brotherhood isn't shared uh, communally, like as, as a population, because I think that would go a long way, you know, as driven by this discussion we're having today on checking on your mates, seeing how they are, are they okay? Um, it's no different out there, though. You, you know, you still have to probe sometimes with your mates and say, hey, mate, you know, I can tell you're off, like, what's up? Um, but, uh, like, you know, in just those two stories in themselves, I'm sure you can, you know, they're a testament that we are there for each other and, um, there's, you know, we'll move um, heaven and earth just to get to one another. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. 
we'll touch on PTSD and sort of, I guess, the challenges you sort of obviously mentioned earlier that you'd come home and bring things from, I guess, when you went away that you sort of probably would have, would normally bring, uh, leave there when you come back home to your family. But obviously, the longer you spent away and the often you went away and you came back, you sort of brought back those memories. Can you just sort of touch on your struggles with PTSD and sort of, I guess, how you dealt with them and sort of, yeah, some of the things that, you, that sort of struggled you the most, hurt you the most, sorry? Yeah, well, I can, um, there might have been some confusion, but I can I can 100% clear up that I didn't have um, any PTSD um, aligned, so I've, I've been quite um, oh, adamant okay, about, about that. that. But yeah. No, 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 that's fine. But a lot of us do, you know, come, um, you know, come, it, it just be day to day too. Like what isn't understood is that um, it's not a typical job. I have to be really concise and direct with the words that I use here, but your normal job, you're asked to do something. Um, and if you don't like that idea or if you don't like that, you can refute that or reject that um, very rarely are you asked, you're kind of told. So there's a, you know, there's a classic, like, you're not um, volunteered or sorry, volunteered, it's voluntold. I suppose with that, you know, you're, you've been trained to be disciplined. You've been trained not to question anyone superior than you, higher than you, because they've been given the training to uh, not only look after their own interests, but in their best interest of their peers underneath them. So there is really no requirement to, to refute anything that's been asked of you. And where I'm going with that is that there is like, there's high demands throughout throughout day-to-day activities. Sometimes you just feel like there isn't really a moment of downtime or a moment of reset. And so you may come home feeling overawed by your day, knowing that there's, there's challenges that when you come home, the uniform might come off, but you're still a father or you're still a husband. And so that, in itself was where I need to become more aware and understand that you do really have to leave it at the door. And what I mean by that is you could, you could have the worst day in the world and come home and, and, and you can still talk about that, but you might want to just check it out and just get all that baggage out the front door before you come home and, and don't bring in that angst or that anger or frustration from your day. And because the people inside are only welcoming you with open arms and love and they don't understand. That was where I had to, differentiate that I had to understand that yeah I'm you know that sometimes it crap but by leaving my emotions at the door and coming home and explaining that you know through the art of conversation uh do you do you let those around you actually understand what's going on um and not be affected by that raw emotion or frustration or anger whatever the case may be um that that you, you know you've gone through throughout your day and while I touch on it you know, that was just my um, my experience. But how often does, does anyone have those experiences through their day-to-day job? Uh, so I think that for me, when I reached out to you, I wanted, there was a few points that I wanted to raise in conversation with yourself, but that one was the main one. It doesn't matter what kind of occupation you have, you know, paramedics, gee, they must have it tough dealing with the people um, that they have to see on a drunken disorderly night. Um, and they've got to remember at the end of the day, they're coming home to loved ones and, and they're coming home to be respected and appreciated. So, um, you know, just to have that understanding to not, yep, 
you, you, you may have been kicked, you may have been pushed, you may have felt like um, your day of work has been rubbish, but there are there, there are people around you that care and aren't actually going to treat you like that and don't deserve um, your angst fired directly at them. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. And no, actually, no, no, actually, I really do like that you just mentioned that. Um, is that something that sort of, I guess, took you a long time to sort of work out? Because you seem very content with what you just said, but is that sort of something that you sort of just, I guess, not always thought, always knew, sort of, I guess, over time it sort of grew on you or is it something that you've always sort of known? No, definitely, definitely not. It's um, something that grew on me. It became known that sometimes a lot of relationships were fractured um, when, when you were in the army or defence force, divorces and um, boyfriends and girlfriends splitting up. I can't say there is a direct correlation through any study of my own, but through conversations that I've had with um, other individuals and members, they've, they've said that. And I was coming home and my lovely wife was very understanding and knew, knew what I was going through, was able to say, look, she was able to just have that mature conversation with me. She was able to say, hey, I understand what you're going through. I understand that life is tough at the moment. I understand that it might not be enjoyable for you as it once was but you're coming home a different person. You're coming home um, not happy, not easy going, not bubbly. And for her to say that, you know, it was that real light bulb moment for me. I was like, okay, so I'm having these conversations at work with these people. And now this, I'm having a conversation with my wife who's bringing up to my attention that I'm not the same person when I come home. I was like, okay, I need to become self-aware and I need to make that um a couple of those changes and make an understanding of, of that. So that's where it really started to grow on me. And I could not be happier now to reflect back on my life and see the choices that I've made and really gone, yeah, I nailed it. You hear, obviously, you play sport and I like sport's a massive thing for me personally. But you hear the saying, I guess, you can't just flick the switch between good and bad and sort of it, it takes time and it takes effort. You can't just go one minute, yeah, you're good, and then turn it off and go next next minute you're bad when you were working as full-time in the army did it sort of becoming did it sort of become to the point where you sort of had to flick the switch from okay I'm at work this is my job this is what I have to do I'm here for a purpose and then right now I flick the switch to work mode and then once you leave that office you take your uniform off you flick the switch back off to just this is Rowan this is my life this is my family I'm here to look after them and not sort of bring work into your your personal life and not bring your personal life into your work? Or was it just more just put, put all everything into one? No, de- definitely. And uh, I'm something that's just, I don't know who I am, I guess. I just try and remain unique and try and remain true to myself. And I knew what the army wanted from me and what they wanted me to be. But there was always like this... You know, and there's part of me that I was like, yeah, I can be that, but I can also still be me. And so I just made some choices to try and make keep me aligned to that and keep me honest to that. So in 2015, I uh, trialed uh, for Moreton Bay NPL club uh, in soccer in, in Brisbane. I was successful. It was actually a bit crazy. I actually went to trial for the um, Albany Creek Brisbane Premier League team because I was like, you know, that's all I'll probably be good at. And 
peculiarly, they were like, oh, our team's sorted, but we know our MPL team's not, and they're affiliated with us. They're like our brother, so you should just go down the road and try with them. And I thought, mate, you're nuts. Like, that's like MPL Queensland. That's crazy. Like, I'm not that standard. No way. And and I, I rolled in and and I remember like, he's like, oh, you know, nice to meet you. you know, what position do you play? Uh, you know, I really think I can make it as a winger or a striker. And he's like, oh, okay. And he's like, well, just to let you know, like our striker is an ex league striker and our wing is um, an international from France. So did you want to... Uh, do you want to rethink your position? <laughs> I was like, yeah, fair, okay. By left back. Okay, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna compete with that. And so I said, oh, I, I fancy myself as a midfielder then. And um, he said, all right, we'll look at you there. Uh, one thing led to another, and I, I just kept turning back. Coming, he was like, you want to come back? And I couldn't believe it. I was like, no way. And so. Um, I kept coming back, and yeah, he, he, I ended up making making the cut, the squad of twenty. And uh, I had to sign a proper contract. I was blown out. I was like, what is this? You know, we had AstroTurf in our change rooms. We had our own little change boxes. Where I diverged to that story is because that was me trying to still remain civilian, like try and be known. So like I would try and balance that and um, get amongst, like you said, that, that camaraderie of sport and the boys who didn't see me as some army person. They just saw me as this, this bloke who, who moved from Tassie and, just trying to have a go. Um, and so that was my way of disconnection, as well as my family. Yeah, no, absolutely love that. I think there needs to come an understanding within yourself, though. There's got to be a point in your time where you're not feeling, you know, you wake up to start your day, you're not feeling 100%, you're not feeling real kick-ass. There, there's got to be that trigger there where you're like, okay, there's something not quite right. For me, I'm a very emotional-driven person, you know, when I'm happy, I'm up and about. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm down, I'm down like I'm I'm low, and I'm like, well, what what's triggered that? What's affected that? And so that time, I suppose, you know, even when I was young, and and, and asking myself, what's the point of, of living? What's the point of being here? That was, I may not have known it then, but that's a point of vulnerability. That's a point of asking yourself, like, right there, and to the point of being in the army, I was like. I'm in, a, I'm in a real fragile emotional state right now. And I had to build up the courage when my wife said to me, you know, you're bringing this home. I had to just let the water go and be vulnerable. It's okay to be vulnerable. I think, I think it comes with a, like a painted brush that being vulnerable is bad, but it's okay to go. I was able to put my hand up and say to her, emotionally, um, and mentally, I'm I'm vulnerable right now. I feel like you know, I feel like I just have to kick my toe, and I'll just go lose it. I hope that's answered your question. I, like that's that's kind of you know, in discussing what you've said there, that's kind of what yeah. what it brings to me, what I what I think, or how you know, a personal reflection of what what vulnerability can be. Yeah, no, it definitely does, definitely does. Um, yeah, so like I, I, like I mentioned, so yeah, just the time you face a challenge, setback or failure, sort of how it affected you, what you learned from it and sort of, yeah, any advice you'd be willing to offer for anyone that could maybe go through something like that. We've all hit setbacks in our day-to-day lives, whether we realise it or not. They just, they're on, on a scale, they're just either really minuscule or, you know, really big. It's like, I don't know. 
you know, you pay for you pay for your lunch every day and you might leave your wallet at home. There's a setback. You're like, okay, well, how do I, you know, how do I adapt and overcome that? What's what's my next purpose? And that's something small, right? And you'd go, okay, well, I'll just start mate, can I borrow 20 bucks? But there's a setback. Or do you go, no, nah, you know what? Like, um, you know, I'll just have a cup of tea and, and I'll learn from that. And then, then to the grand scale of setbacks, I've been told, hey, you know, um, going for a team um, in soccer and being told, you know, you don't cut the mustard. I think for me, like my, a lot, a few of my setbacks have been like sport orientated. I've kind of held myself in a regard where I feel like I can cut the mustard and, and to be told um, that you don't, um, God, it burns, it burns, man. And, and uh, somebody once told me, you know, soccer is one of those really, cruel sports like if you're good at tennis you're good at tennis like nobody's telling you you're not good at tennis you know like look at Djokovic look at Federer if you're good you're good you can be the best player at soccer but if somebody above you doesn't rate you then you're not the best anymore and and it's so true like there's been evidence of that like you know Juan Mata used to be unreal then Jose Mourinho came and was like nah I don't know I don't rate you and he was like rated like the best player in the EPL for that year and so that is, that is a struggle in itself, you know, like you, you go out there to try and impress somebody and, and, it, and you could give it, give it your all. Um, you know, I've, I've tried for you know, plenty of soccer teams and at the end of the day, it's just been told, look, mate, I'm sorry, you need to, uh, you need to come back. You didn't quite, or, you know, sorry, you, you can't come back. There's just, there's not a spot here for you. I must be clear, when I did sign that semi-professional contract in Moreton Bay, it wasn't... It was awesome. It was fantastic. I didn't, I didn't feature as much as I would have liked. When I did, it was such a relief and a bit of reassurance and backing on my own belief when I, when I did because I thought, well, I got told back in Tassie that I was no good. And, and there's the evidence right there. And as cliche as it sounds, not giving up. Everyone says it though. Everyone says, like, if you feature a setback, like, don't give up, like, pursue it keep going you'll make something but that that in itself the amount of times I was told that I, I just didn't I didn't make I didn't make the cut and then to right then have made the cut and then when I moved back to Tassie uh, that was one thing I held in inside I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna prove when I left when I was young you know only 22 but my younger years I was going to show them. I was like, I'm going to come back with determination drive and say, hey, I've got something more to offer. And but you've got to have that too, I must admit. Like you've got to have that burn and fire and some people do and some people don't. I think that's true in itself. Some people want to use that being told no, being told, given that setback as ambition to go, no, nah, I'll show you or I'll prove, prove you. It probably could be a little bit of what I'm looking for, like, not warrant it, I can't I can't think of the word, but it, it you know I can understand why people don't because like what's it might not be warranted to them. Why would they have to prove to somebody's told them they're no good at something? So like why do they have to or why would they give up time and just say you know what I'm going to prove to you that I am good enough? So I do get do like some you know that not trust somebody to prove to somebody that they're wrong. But for me and my makeup, I was like no, I can't wait to prove somebody wrong. Like I really enjoy that. But in, I think evidence within itself, if you do not give up, you know, you will be rewarded with the chocolates. Did that drive to, I guess, want to put to prove people wrong, did that sort of have a bit of a toll on your mental health or just on your personal 
values as well to some extent. Like I've always been the type of person that if someone says I can't do something, I'll make sure that, that I'll to go and do it. Not only go and do it, but I'll make sure that that person is the person that sort of misses out on the thing that they said that I couldn't do. So if, for instance, I didn't make a team because this other person was too better than me and then the coach said I can't do it, but I'll make sure that I'll take that place, that person's place in the team. So they would miss out. So that was sort of my sort of my way of sort of I guess taking souls with on to go back to David Goggins, a book that I've been reading where he takes talks about taking souls and talks about making sure that even though you're told that you can't do something, prove them wrong and not only prove them wrong, but beat the person who told you not that you couldn't do it. Yeah, definitely, definitely when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a very similar uh, mindset to you. Maybe not so much like feeling like to take their spot. And I think as I've gotten older, um, it doesn't mean so much that they need to see it. Whereas in my young years, it kind of did. Like, you know, I, I made it public when I made the Morton Bay team. Like, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I kicked a good goal. Like, I'd make it known just for those who ever did doubt me. But now as I'm, I'm kind of like, well, if I ever didn't believe in something, then I just need to prove it into myself now because at the end of the day, um, which is funny, like at the end of the day, you could take that soul or you could rub somebody's nose in it, but they probably didn't care to begin with. They just had, they just, it was just, you know, it was just a throwaway. They're just like, you're no good at that or you can't make that. But they've never lost sleep thinking about, did he ever make that? Whereas you've lost sleep going, no, screw him. I'm going to, you know, I will make that. Like he doesn't know. And so there it is in itself. He's, he's never lost sleep in, the, in that throwaway line and you've, you've lost sleep over that. And that's really tangible, I suppose, going off, you know, offline here, going off on a tangent that when people put down somebody, when people say, you know, those one-off slurs or that comment like, oh, you know, yeah, Jenny's such a slut or, or he's such a, uh, you know, a homo or whatever the case may be, they throw it away and they think nothing of it. And they're like, you ask them at 12 o'clock, what did they say? They go, I don't know. But you ask that person who they said, what, what and they said at 12 o'clock, I got called a slut. So the person who said it never lost sleep on it. And how much, how much implication did it then have on the person who heard it? Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? And so I really do, I, I do feel that you need to then, if where possible, because that did affect me as when I, like through my youth growing up, they never really cared. And how much time did I devote about that? And I can be still found guilty of that. Even at this, you know, if in in my present, somebody might you know say something, and I'll and I'm trying to go to sleep at night, and I'm like, damn, I wish they never. You know, why did that just slander me like that? Or why, why, you know, why didn't I get sixty minutes and in, or sorry, why didn't I get ninety minutes of a game and, and only get sixty? So, just to be able to, to like to grow from that, evolve from that. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely love that. Um. Well, what's sort of one, I guess, one bit of advice you would sort of offer to someone that may be going through a, certain, not a challenge like that or just, just life in general? What's sort of one bit of advice? Obviously, you touched on, I guess, never giving up and just continuing to chase your goals and chase what you're trying to work to. Is that sort of, I guess, one thing that you would say? I guess, but at the same time, like a lot of people, you know, like I've listened, I've listened to your podcast um, a lot and a lot, you know, a lot of people do do say that and I feel like that doesn't speak to everyone what I've found 
it really does work for me because I think it is too easy to say to somebody, hey, don't give up. But that might not mean as much to them as it means to you. It means as much as it means to you to not give up. You could say that to yourself, but it might not mean anything to them to hear it from you. I think if somebody's going through a struggle or a challenge or a setback, this might prove to be more worth, have more worth, is to discuss it, whether it be with your folks or with my, uh, with your friends or with your partners. Because I go back to the fact that my relationship was so good with my parents because they were there for me through my struggles at such an early age that our relationship is so pure that when, you know, even when I didn't make a soccer team, the first person I'd ring up is my dad. And I'm like, like, yo, what's going on? Like, I, I didn't, you know, and he'd be there and he'd listen and he's, and he's going to give you a bit of thinking that you might not have even touched on because you're so narrow focused on one aspect of it. Um, but that's just one example. So any, you know, my, my point is any challenge, any setback, bring it up with somebody else because you're, you're, you're closed off. You know, you've got like, think of a horse who's got the, the blinkers on it with the blinds around their eyes. You're only thinking one way about why you've, why you've not been successful or that setback. But if you talk to somebody else, they can give you perhaps a different perspective and a different avenue of how you can tackle it better next time or a different way of thinking. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that role. And that's a, that's a really great place to end things. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, mate, and sort of sharing your story. And I absolutely love your mindset and sort of how you go about life and sort of the things you've said or everything you've sort of said in the podcast. And I really do appreciate not only you messaging me, but you following through and coming on and having a chat with me. No, I appreciate that. We got there at the end. If this episode has triggered anything for you around mental health, don't remain unannounced. Visit www.stagechatty.com.au slash get help for a list of services.